Hey, Cozy Robots out there in internet land. It's me, Mike McCarg. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, the program about empathetic skepticism. We talk about how we understand the world, what is true and what isn't true, and gosh, how our feelings relate to that and how we relate to each other and how we can make a world together that we'd all like to live in. Right now, we are live on YouTube and Facebook and Periscope and Twitch. and Well, actually, that's the only four places that we're live right now. But if you're watching after the fact, like on Instagram TV or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we want you to know you can join us live on Monday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, where we answer your questions live. That's exactly what we're going to do tonight. And I want to let you know that as you leave comments, we can see that. We are watching your comments. In fact, because the Cozy Robot Show is brought to you by an entire team of people who are now going to join me, I'd like to introduce you, first of all, to Victory Palmazano. Hey, Victory. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being here, as always. <laughs> Victory is the show's executive producer. She uh, runs everything. She's the showrunner and uh, <laughs> helps us figure out what we're going to do and when. And when Victory heard, wow, we got really great feedback on Ask Mike Anything last week, decided to try it again. And also joining us is Grace Vaughn. Hi, everybody. Hi. Grace is our social media manager, and we've decided to change up the feel of the program just a little bit to bring these people who are usually sending me messages behind the camera, making them join us in front of the camera to make the show a little uh, more fun, less formal, to make me less freaked out trying to like operate all the little sequences and figure out what the messages are and what questions and, yeah. We want the show to go a long time, so we want it to be fun for everybody, I guess, including me. And yeah. I know, I can tell you, if you can't tell, I'm already having more fun that Grace Woo! and Victory are joining us for the show. The only downside is we get so busy talking before the show, we very nearly forget to do the show itself. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, yeah, so how is your week? Well, I guess you're okay. separate weeks. Yeah, I I can go first, I guess. Go for it. Take it away. Uh, my week is going okay. I mean, this week is a big week. We've got a big thing happening on Wednesday. So uh, not as crappy as last week, um, but I'm really excited to be doing the show. I do get a little nervous. I find I start mm. to get really hot and warm right before we're supposed to go on. So I've just taken my socks off. <laughs> um, good. Good. The Cozy Robot Show knocked Victory Socks off. You heard it Literally, literally. Uh, and yeah, that's um, good in general. Great. Also, what about you? I think oh. this week is less crappy than last week, is the yeah. official slogan of 2021. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully it just continues to go down that route, right? I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the goal of 2020, I mean, at least for me. Less crappy is also a bit relative because I'm in Los Angeles, Mike is in Los Angeles, and we were just remarking that the sky is pretty smoky for a really sad reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's more crappy, actually. Mm -hmm. um, Mike, do you want to tell them about why our sky is smoky? Yeah, um, it's been a little bit of a mystery. I've been watching in various online communities in and around Los Angeles and that people have been remarking that the sky looks like it looks when we're having wildfire, not wildflowers. 
Uh, the sky looks very different when we have wildfires. A, a narrow, wonderful time of the year in LA. When we have wildfires, you know, the sky, the sun gets red, the sky gets hazy. Sometimes you can't really see the sky. And the LA basin has looked like that for a few days now, and nobody could figure out why. And um, then the news dropped today that the um, the board that regulates air quality in Los Angeles County had to issue exceptions, uh, trigger warning. This is really heavy. So I'm going to give you a second. If you need to like turn the volume down to turn it down. Um, but they've had to issue waivers to crematoriums to operate round the clock in order to deal with the backlogs of bodies from the COVID-19 pandemic here in LA. And I know people have a lot of pandemic fa fatigue. People are like, I'm so tired of the virus. And in a weird quirk of human psychology and the way our brains work, people feel like they understand the virus now because the virus has been around a long time. So we're less afraid of the virus now than we were, say, in March of 2020 or April of 2020. And yet, with the number of cases that are out there and the new variations of the virus, like B.1.1.7 in the UK, that is much more contagious than the original COVID strain, COVID is much more dangerous right now than it's ever been. And as bad as the winter was right now, we're setting ourselves up for a spring that's even worse this, with this winter. In L.A. County, deaths are double their normal rate. More than twice as many people are dying a day as would in a normal year. We just don't have health events that drive that kind of death rate in living memory. Um, and so I, I hope that understanding that where we live, Victory and I live, the cloud, the sky is clouded with the remains of human beings, might let people know right now, right now is the time when we need to double down our efforts at controlling and mitigating this virus. Because the good news is we have a vaccine. It's being manufactured. It's being delivered. I think we'll probably end up talking about vaccines and vaccines safety later in the episode. But right now, I just want to let you know, this is the time to reduce your trips as low as you possibly can. If you're an essential worker and have to work, of course go to work, but then don't go socialize with people after work. Do as much as you can to stay home, to limit your trips, shorten your trips, and wear masks all the time. It could be in the February timeframe that health experts start asking us to wear masks when we are home because B1.1, B.1.1.7 is so, so contagious that we're getting reports of people who are masked and socially distanced catching it outdoors. And that's a really, really frightening dynamic in the virus, especially when we are really this close to getting it under control. You know, we could have herd immunity through the vaccine potentially sometime this summer. So we're further into this than remains, and we can save a lot of lives if we're careful together. Mm. Leave it to me to bring the party down. Um, it's heartbreaking, but it's important to know. Yeah. I didn't mean to go so dark so quick, but I brought us there. <laughs> well, maybe we could uh, we could manage something that we all have to do. You know, people have said, Mike, why do you want to talk about mental health? Just we like it when you talk about science. You're good at talking about science. But mm -hmm. when we only approach information without an understanding of our feelings, 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have trouble responding to the information we get. It can be overwhelming. We can have an instinct that's emotionally based to ignore information that challenges or threatens us. And so one thing we can realize is we can make choices. So we just talked about something really hard. Mm-hmm. And we sat in that, and we're not going to gloss over the kind of scary feeling. I know I, I can feel right in the pit of my belly, like yep. a heaviness. It's been there yep. all day as I kind of read that information. But we can also make choices. We can make choices to pursue levity, to pursue joy, to pursue relationships in the midst of all these challenges. You know, I, one of the things that's kept me going, one of the reasons I'm so excited that Grace and Victory are joining me on the show is talking to Grace and Victory throughout the week has kind of kept a toehold on sanity for me, right? Mm-hmm. Having relationships with people, but yeah. also choosing to talk about things that are fun as well. And if I read our outline correctly, we also have some silly stuff we could talk about we, at the top of the we show. Got silly questions. <laughs> We've got silly questions, Mike. Yeah. Um, but first, I do want to say I think it's so important that on this program, like we're talking about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It it's very important. Um, okay, here's a silly question though. Um, if you, Mike and Victory, if you and Grace. Up- and, and Grace, if we woke up tomorrow as an animal, which animal would be most disappointing? And that's from CP542 on Instagram. Thank you so much for sending in all your questions, everybody. <laughs> I, this one made me laugh out loud, truly. That is a silly question. <laughs> for me, it's definitely like a slug or a single cell mm. something. I want to be able to fly or, you know run across the safari or something exciting. I had thought like a single cell thing would be disappointing unless you somehow, when you turn back into you, assuming you do, actually the question wasn't specific, if you're going to turn back into yourself. uh, I would love to have some recollection of what it was like to be a single-celled organism, what level of awareness I had Mm. about my actions as I moved throughout the world which would likely be extraordinarily limited, but having some understanding would probably revolutionize my understanding of life and living. Uh, So I thought the hagfish would be the most disappointing (laughs) because they have like a nervous system, but a hagfish really just stays in the deep water in search of smelly and stinky things to grab onto to try to eat rotting flesh. And that just is like... Pretty far from the vibe I'm looking for in my life, so I think yeah. a fish would oh, be what super a terrible name for a... Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the name. Uh, my mine would be a fly for the same reasons. Flies generally generally hang out in pretty stinky places. You don't want to digest food by eating it, vomiting it, and then eating it again, Victory. <laughs> That's it's not just true. not, yeah, it's, it's not, <laughs> that's not appealing to me. <laughs> um, I have a, I have another, <laughs> I have another question, uh, but this one isn't, is less silly. It's more, I don't know. I read it and I was like, okay, but I actually need to know what the answer is. Um, Stepha Adams on Instagram asks where, where Mike is the internet? Where? Is yeah. Where internet? is it? At this point, yes. Um, gosh, mostly 
in and around Earth's atmosphere. So much of our internet is wireless, so it's all right now. The internet is moving through all of our bodies in wow. the form of uh, different forms of non-ionizing electromagnetic radiation. Non-ionizing is really important. People have radiation; they go, "Oh no!" and they freak out. But radiation is like uh, <laughs> I'm radiating right now. What am I radiating? Infrared light, heat. That doesn't mean being near me will cause cancer in someone, even though I am radiating heat in the same mm -hmm. way your Wi-Fi router radiates 2.4 and 5.2, no, 2.4 gigahertz and 5 point something gigahertz Wi-Fi. Actually, I think it's five even. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get, don't go down that rabbit hole, Mike. <laughs> the point is it emits this electromagnetic radiation and encoded in the shape of those radio waves is information. So since and in our cell phone network, cell phone networks are on a completely different wavelength and pass more readily through our bodies than Wi-Fi radiation does, which kind of gets blocked by our skin and our soft tissues and the water in our bodies. So the internet's in and around us, and then how it gets from place to place is by moving through um, different cables. Some have copper in them and are electrical cables. Other are fiber optic cables, literal cables that beam light across long distances, including in these massive, massive conduits rolled across the seafloor between continents. So the internet is this massive what? engineering project. And what's really cool about the internet is architecturally, it's a network of networks. So no one piece of the internet relies on all the other pieces of the internet to function. Any segment of the internet could technically continue to function on its own, cut off from all the other pieces of the internet. Although you probably wouldn't like it as much because it wouldn't give you Netflix. So, <laughs> uh, but the internet is everywhere. And now really remarkably, the internet has been augmented with something that is is indirectly connected, but connected to it, called the Deep Space Network, operated by NASA. So we oh actually route internet-style <laughs> packets all throughout our solar system, all the, as far as you know, New Horizons, uh, all the way out near and beyond Pluto. So the internet at this point is is largely Earth-based, but moving across our solar system at the speed of light. Classic Mike. That was a silly question <laughs> with a real answer. That was like so complicated. I'm in awe. I just, it sounded like a real question to me. Mike, can I tell you, I thought the internet was like a monolith in a desert somewhere. <laughs> like just being like, oh, just in like a desert. And that's where the magic happened. There is this great video uh, narrated by, um, an Irish woman about where the internet comes from, done with all this old stock footage. And it's like, they start by by mining it out of the ground and refining it in factories and shipping it on trucks. And then it goes to Bill Gates' house where he signs off before this. Is, it's just it's yes. really funny. Oh man, that's really funny. That's I'm not, I'm not, I'm too sincere to go that way with that question. You're like, where's the internet? Well, well, let's yeah, you really, you really answered it, <laughs> and I really wanted to know. So that that works out. That works out well. It do. All right, Grace. Yes, are we going to real? Are we going to real questions? Yes. Mike, we're do you have questions. any announcements? No, we don't have any announcements. I'm happy to be here. 
I'm Yes, we do. We do. Actually, let me pull from the comments that have been coming in. Yeah, we got a lot of questions here. Um, all right, let's see what we have. Thank you everybody for putting your, your questions in the comments. I'm going through and I'm looking, um, Hey Mike, if our son, Oh, this is Colby night comedy. Oh, Colby night. Yeah, no Colby. Oh, awesome. Hi Colby. So Colby says, Hey Mike, if our son were to explode, I know the light would take eight minutes to reach us. Mm -hmm. What do you think the rest of the timing would look like? Just wondering in case I suddenly wind up immortal. (laughs) Man. Wow. Um, that nothing good, absolutely nothing good if the sun exploded. So uh, we had a little, in, right in the question, a nod to relativistic uh, velocities. Um, and so let's talk about distance for a second. If you hear someone say a light second, a light minute, or a light year, they are not talking about a measurement of time. They're talking about a measurement of distance. And that is a light year is the amount of uh, distance traveled by a photon in a vacuum in a year. And it's an incredible, absolutely astounding amount of space. A photon can travel something like 186,000 miles a second. So um, that's a, it's an absurd distance when you, when you pull that out over a year. And um, so a light minute is how far light can go in a minute, which is still very far. And so the sun generally, now our distance to the sun varies a little because our elliptical, our orbit around the sun is elliptical, um, is about eight minutes. It averages about eight minutes. And so if the sun suddenly disappeared, which is a far less frightening, but actually still terrifying <laughs> notion, if the sun disappeared, we wouldn't know for eight minutes because it would take eight minutes for the lack of photons to reach the Earth, and it would take eight minutes for the lack of gravitational pull from the sun to reach the Earth. So for eight minutes, the Earth would be completely unaffected. It's not just light that moves at the speed of light. Most of the forces of physics move at light speed as well. So light speed is really significant in the fundamental structure of our universe. If the sun exploded based on the size of our sun. The only reason I can imagine our sun would explode would be that it was running out of hydrogen fuel in its core, which is expected to happen in uh, a few billion years. Don't panic. A billion years is a really long time. And when that happens, our sun is expected to swell up into a red giant, which is something main stage stars like our sun do when they start running out of fuel. Uh, and they start fusing different elements until they ultimately uh, fuse too much iron in their cores and they, they really die a spectacular death. Uh, it is expected that when our sun becomes a red giant, it's going to swell up so large that the Earth's orbit will be included inside of it, uh, which is <laughs> it's, um, the technical term for that is bad. It's bad for a planet. The sun is so wildly hot, it's really hard to describe how hot the sun is. One way I like to think of it is a fire, combusting fire, would be extremely cold 
on the sun, like colder than than dry ice is to us, fire would be to the sun. So most of the solid matter we know of vaporizes very quickly when it gets anywhere near the sun. So if our sun exploded in a red giant way, um, everything here would likely be dead long before any stellar mass made it here from the energetic explosion that preceded it. So the sun would likely get very, 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 very bright and probably disrupt our magnetosphere, uh, you know, knock off a bunch of our atmosphere. Um, it would not be a good situation on planet Earth. We're too close to the sun to to last long enough to be worried about the ejecting solar mass that could occur. Uh, maybe if you were on Jupiter or Saturn, certainly on Pluto, you might have a good show and your planet might be relatively unaffected, assuming you avoided any direct ejections of coronal mass or solar mass. Um, yeah, but that'd be a bad time. If the sun explodes, like, have a good time. There's really nothing you can do about it. So just enjoy your final moments. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that's all you can do. The, the sun is so massive. Like, the sun is an ongoing nuclear explosion with a mass more than a million times the mass of the Earth. Like, it's really beyond our comprehension just how much energy is happening right down the street, so to speak. Wow. Mike, we just got a question in from Rodney Laserfield. Great name. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's really good. Uh, what is your advice for talking to conspiracy theorists who believe Trump is going to sign some bill that will incarcerate Obama and Clinton and cause a nationwide blackout. Yeah. It's a good question. It's a, it's a really good question. And it's a good question because of what we're facing in the world right now. But it's also a hard question. It doesn't have easy answers. Um. We are in an age right now of conspiracy theories. We're in an age where people's understanding of reality is collapsing to great detriment to our ability to organize as a society. Um, so I want to start with something important. There's only so much you can do personally. I'll, I'll say it again. There's only so much you can do personally because part of this is systemic. You know, they, they found really quickly that after uh, Donald Trump and some of his closest supporters were banned from Twitter, uh, disinformation about the election fell by 73% in 12 hours and then stayed low and continues to drop. So, Part of the problem is our media ecosystem sensationalizes and focuses on misinformation and the conflict it produces because it's salacious for our brains. We are social mammals, and so conflict is like kind of alluring to us, even if we're conflict-averse people. And so we might say, like, I don't want to hear about this stuff 
and we'll still tune in a little bit to kind of keep track of what's going on because that's how social mammals are. That's the kind of behaviors we engage in. So we have to start by saying we need to have some understanding of what free speech is, but also the responsibilities that come along with free speech. We need to have very difficult conversations about the role that government plays in the distribution and filtering of speech, the role that private entities play, the responsibilities that citizens bear. And what's important to note that in the United States, at least, free speech doesn't give you a right to incite harm through your speech, right? Uh, it's not free speech to say, hey, I'd like you to kill someone for me. we That's totally settled law. There's no challenge there. If you're like, I would like you to kill another person for me, that's a crime. And that doesn't mean we don't have free speech, right? So we have to talk about, number one, public policy, media policy, the media ecosystem that's driving these things. That's a big and difficult conversation. The second piece is the interpersonal piece. And here we understand something very challenging and very difficult. Facts and reasoning with someone don't meaningfully impact their acceptance of conspiracy theories. In fact, trying to share facts with people interpersonally about conspiracy theories often deepens their belief in false information, misinformation, or disinformation, right? Wow, what? That's frustrating. Yeah, it's really frustrating. I'm a science communicator, and I have all kinds of conspiracy theories showing up in my social media all the time. So when we're talking about public media, the response is really simple. When I see misinformation or disinformation happening on social media, I respond immediately with the truth. And I drop the truth, I cite a source, and I move on. I don't stick around and debate. I don't fight with people. I just don't do it. Why? Because it won't work. I'm leaving the right information not to convince the poster to change their beliefs, but to slow the rate at which people fall for conspiracy theories. We have studies that show us when people are presented with misinformation and then it's immediately followed by a counterfactual fact in response to disinformation, people are less likely to believe the misinformation. So I do that as a public service. And then on my social media, uh, when people come and they leave Conspiracy theories about elections or anti-vax policy or all these things which are terrible for our public mental health and physical health, I delete the comments and I ban the person that posted it. And that's not because I don't believe reasonable people can disagree. And it's not because I don't accept that we should have debates about not only you know, what is right or what is best from a policy perspective, but even we have we have debates about what facts are in some cases with a shared framework. But I'm not going to let people use my notoriety as a public figure to spread misinformation. I banned several people who I otherwise like and agree with on my Instagram today because they posted comments that were anti-vax comments. 
It's not because I hate those people. It's not because I don't want to talk to those people. It's because I care about our ability to meaningfully and responsibly respond to a global pandemic. That means slowing the spread of misinformation. It also means that me, as a public figure, is actually in a terrible position to convince an anti-vaxxer to change their views. Because that's the final point. What actually works is relationship. What actually changes people's propensity to believe that they, to believe conspiracy theories, is someone who's close to them stays close to them and asks questions and is supportive interpersonally. And it's incredibly difficult and challenging work. So I have a number of personal friends in my life who are either anti-vaxxers or have anti-vax propensities. And it is my pleasure and my honor with those people whom I actually know to listen to what they say and then ask questions as I affirm that I love and care for them, because that's what research says actually work. And this comes with an essential caveat. You know, my friend, Dr. Hillary McBride and I were talking, I believe, publicly on the Cozy Robot Show (laughs) about the responsibility we have in social change in our family systems. And you need to be strategic about the people who you're investing the time and emotional energy to kind of draw out of conspiracy theories. Because when there are cycles of abuse, when there are patterns of exploitation in a relationship, you should not be the person who has this conversation with someone. You should take care of your mental health first. Why? So that you can show up in society and help us solve the big problems we have to solve together. It might be someone else's job to talk to your caregiver from when you were a child if that person was abusive to you and if there haven't been appropriate boundaries established in that relationship that allow you to be safe and to be healthy. So you see, there's it's very complicated. There's a public policy conversation. There's a media literacy and media um, responsibility conversation. There's what you should do in public media and public conversations, and there's what you should do, <clears throat> excuse me, interpersonally. And all of these things have to work in concert for us to start pushing back this tidal wave of misinformation that is threatening people's lives, and it is threatening people's lives. As we alluded to earlier in the program, the air in my city is clogged with human remains that are being burned. And so when people would post a picture of a child and say, see, this is what vaccines do, that's not only often misinformation, it misses something fundamental. No vaccine in human history has killed 400,000 Americans in a year. And in our political situation, there is not a situation where some moral equivalence can be drawn between Black Lives Matter and Trump-supporting white nationalists. One of these groups fights for their basic rights of freedom and against unjust policing and unjust police brutality, and the other invades the Capitol and kills police officers. 
And if we don't address the things I just talked about, public policy, the way the media behaves, the way we all communicate in public social media, and our responsibility to each other in relationship, it's not just the anti-vaccination movement that will threat our life and safety in COVID-19. Nationalist movements are some of the most destructive forces in human history. And the track we are on right now as a country where the FBI is vetting National Guard soldiers tasked with guarding the president because they're afraid there could be an inside job. You don't need a crystal ball to see how that could impact our ability to live and organize a society together. Facts matter. And you've heard it said that facts don't care about your feelings. But I'd say this, unless we learn to process and understand our feelings, we will never be able to meaningfully respond to the facts. Mike, thank you so much for that. Um, I, do we... Um, well, Vicky, I, <laughs> I think I'm we should by what you just said, and I thank you, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I think that we need to go do some uh, some of talk about some of our sponsors, but before we do that, on. yeah, before we do that, I want everybody to know what our next question is going to be, so that they can be excited for that when we come back from yeah. our sponsors. Well, so great. Yeah, let me pull it up real fast. It was from somebody who posted in the chat early on. Uh, Kale Riggs said, what is a surprising bucket list item from each of you? So each of us is going to give that a thought while sponsors are being talked about. Yeah. All right. We will talk about that after we hear from our sponsors. Well, as you can see now, the Cozy Robot Show is made by a team of people and would be impossible without the support of our wonderful sponsors. The first of week, the first of week, (laughs) oh, the first of these this week is the overview program. You know, it's my favorite thing I do. Every Wednesday night, I get together with a small group of people and we talk about how to do hard things. We talk about how to grow and to change. And we do that facilitated by a system I designed by studying cognitive psychology and behavioral economics and a bunch of other nerdy things that I'm into. But basically, it's a system for helping us deal with the things inside of us that make it hard to change our lives in meaningful ways and to deal with the stress that comes in our relationships when we are growing and changing, when we are having a new relationship or changing a relationship, when we might be contemplating and moving through issues related to sexual orientation or gender identity. We might be moving to a new town, starting a new job, having a dream about making something new in the world creatively or missionally or in social justice. And so I've wanted to share some of the things I've learned and a system I've created about doing those things. So this Wednesday, January 20th, Orbits of the Overview Program takes off. We're taking a large group of people for the first time through the program. Why? 
I'll be honest, because I wanted to figure out how to make this program cheaper. I think it really helps people. I'm I think I'm more proud of this than anything I've ever done. Uh, Priscilla, who's been through the program, gave me a testimonial I could share with you. And it said, Mike met us each week with empathy as he taught us concrete skills that have the ability to transform our lives. And so in order to make this accessible to more people, we've made the program larger in a way that still allows us to create and cultivate a culture of supporting each other through changes and transitions. And we've even offered reduced pricing for anyone who's been impacted by COVID-19. To learn more and apply for this, that again starts this Wednesday, January the 20th, you can apply at overviewprogram.com. We'd love to see you again at overviewprogram.com. This week, I'd also like to talk to you about BetterHelp. It's an online counseling service (laughs) It's keeping my lights on (laughs) because you better bet I am not driving to a therapist's office in this pandemic. And the fact that I can meet with a licensed professional counselor virtually, video chat, text chat, phone calls, whatever way works best for me, my licensed professional counselor from BetterHelp is there. They have counselors specializing in anxiety and stress, depression, relationships, sleep issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and LGBTQIA matters. What I think might be most wonderful is the fact that when you go to BetterHelp, you fill out a questionnaire, and then they find a counselor for you. I've talked to a lot of people who say, I want to try therapy, but I don't know how to find a therapist. Well, BetterHelp finds a therapist for you. And if for any reason that therapist is not a good fit, BetterHelp will find another therapist for you for no additional charge. Listeners and viewers of The Cozy Robot Show can get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash cozy robot. So why not get started today? Betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. And we're back with a question that I can't remember. So the question was for each of us to say what the most surprising thing is on our bucket list. Um, give it some thought. I know what mine is. I'll go first. Something that has been a bucket list thing for me since probably around the time I was listening to the liturgists, Mike, is, and even before that, the way I found out about the liturgists was listening to um, Pete Holmes. Oh, yeah. Meeting Pete Holmes is a bucket list moment for me. That's a great choice because Pete is a ton of fun. <laughs> I, I am such a fangirl. I, he's cool, and that's my bucket list. So that's me. Excellent choice. Okay, I'll go so we save Mike for last. Uh, at first, I thought the question was bucket list in general. And so I was going to say... Uh, my husband really loves the Japanese channel. We watch it all the time at home. Don't know if you guys are familiar with NHK. If you're not, 
utterly fascinating 24 seven. Um, and it has made me really fascinated in Japan. And so I would really love to go to Japan during the cherry blossom festivals. Um, however, now that I know it's the most surprising, I feel like it's probably on a lot of people's bucket list and you went with the celeb. I'm going to tell you my 12 year old bucket list wish, which I still have a little bit. I love the karate kids so much. And I used to pray every single night that God would let me meet Ralph Macchio. (laughs) And now that that Cobra Kai is back, I'm going to put that back on my bucket list because BTW, he's like 60 years old and still looks like he's still karate kids. So I'm going to go with with Ralph Macchio. That's good. Okay. We both have celebrity meets or why? (laughs) Mike? I don't know that I have a bucket list, which Mm -hmm. makes this challenging. Because first we be like, well, what's on my bucket list? I certainly don't have one formally. So I was trying to imagine like, do I have like an informal bucket list? And like, I'd, I'd really like to take my children to the lowlands of scotland at some point oh, to see that's good family came from but i don't know if that's necessarily very surprising and then um celebrities i would like to meet that would be surprising um any celebrities who have met me would know i'm generally horrified by the experience uh, <laughs> or meeting people in general it's just not, not a thing I excel at. Uh, well, considering you have severe face blindness, it doesn't help. I, yeah, I, I the times it's gone the best with me being a celebrity <laughs> is the many times when I've had literally no clue who they were. Yeah. And they've approached me at a party because I'm the one standing by myself looking at a fern. Uh, <laughs> That's authentic. Whatever, That's I, whatever I'm, and then they're like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, well, check out the, you know. Vacuoles on anyway, but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, oh I mean, I the only I've often told people if I ever met Eddie Vedder, that's the celebrity I would be unable oh. to like cope because right. uh, Pearl Jam's music was so formative for me in my adolescent years, and mm. remains kind of my my go to anthology. Um, that makes sense. But I don't think uh, that's super surprising. I feel like a swing and a miss for me on that question. Colby Knight Comedy says he's low-key shocked that you don't want to go to space. Oh, I would love to go to space, but that's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a surprise. I the would, surprise was caveat. I would absolutely love to go to space. Like, I, I've told people, like, if somebody was like, if someone said you could go to Mars, but it's a one-way trip. And like, we're just going to send you there and you're just going to oh, run out wow. of oxygen. Would you do it? And like, I'd be really tempted. Wow. Um, especially I if I was the first person to go to Mars. No. Then I would, if I was the first person to Mars, like, it'd just be a fight with me and Jenny because we'd be like, I need to go do this. And she'd be like, no. <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> um, have you seen The Martian? The movie The Martian? I have seen The Martian. And thoughts? Thoughts? Um, I mean, I love the book. And I love the movie. It 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 is um, near a high watermark for accurate science portrayal in film. There are a couple of like misses that are pretty reasonable, like the whirlwind in the beginning. 
Uh, Mars's atmosphere mm-hmm. is so thin you could walk right through a tornado. It wouldn't do anything. To you. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, even if it was tornado speed, it just there's not enough force in the atmosphere. It's too thin to throw mm-hmm. things around. But there, I mean. The, the novel was phenomenal in scientific accuracy, and I was surprised how Hollywood messed it up a lot less than I anticipated. I guess I'd say that. So I, I watched that movie, and I was like, all right. A true compliment. Hollywood touches science. I'm like, yeah. oh, come on. That's yeah. insulting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike, we have a question from Christine Lewell, who says, how come some people remember things really early in their childhood and some don't? What a wide open question. There are so many reasons. Uh, I'll just I'll just go through a few. I don't know what else to do. Um, there are genetic factors into how our brains are structured that give us different... Um, predilections towards different abilities in our life related to the structure of brains, including memory. And then our life experiences impact how those genes are expressed. Nutrition plays a huge role, for example. Um, And so part of it is genetics meets nutrition. Uh, And then another huge factor there is... um, our childhood experiences. Many cultures have poorly equipped human beings to become parents of infants. Many cultures have very, very, very done a, done a terrible job. And in Western societies especially, there's been this movement, um, you know, starting, I guess, in the 40s, towards a kind of austere and stern parenting for infants and uh, putting children, you know, in a crib and letting them cry it out until they kind of, kind of self-soothe. And often that is done far before it would be developmentally appropriate. And that gets encoded in an infant's brain as trauma, and that affects an infant's attachment style and impacts the infant's ability to form early childhood memories. Right. So um, and I'm not don't don't hear me wrong. I think there's a lot of situations where there are supportive, loving parents who did their best, who got really bad advice from the culture and really bad modeling from the culture. Um, And then also we there's a lot of childhood trauma in our society and trauma impacts our ability to recall things because it's a a protective function of our brains to kind of reduce our conscious awareness of memories that are cloaked in trauma. You know, I um, have talked about this in my book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. Uh, Before I did trauma therapy, almost all of my childhood before like sixth grade was just kind of cloaked in this thick, thick fog. If I really tried, I could get like a little just a little glimpse of something. Most of what I knew about my childhood was stories I'd heard from other people about my childhood that I'd memorized. And then as I went through trauma therapy, I found that I had a lot more access to early childhood memories, pleasant and unpleasant. And um, you you have to be careful with that because memory is malleable. 
the act of encoding memories and recalling memories changes memories. Um, but I'd say one, probably a major reason, reason in American society, at least, that people have different accesses to early childhood memories has to do with trauma and, and, and how consistent and supportive their parents were in their early childhood. And to be clear, now there's a response to the kind of austere parenting, which is attachment parenting. And what we understand for children to be healthy, you want you kind of want an intersection of setting healthy boundaries for children and giving them emotional support, setting expectations for what they should do and the emotional support to accomplishment and not being punitive in the event they don't meet the expectation, right? It's this combination. And what you typically see with parents is they get one or the other, both of which can be traumatic to children. When we're, uh, when we're just supportive of children without setting boundaries or expectation, that actually can cause challenges in neurological development as well. So, Genetics, nutrition, and uh, the environment that our brains form in, mainly our family systems. Although it can involve our peers as well. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about trauma. <laughs> yeah. By the way, the crowd that's like, hey, just talk about science. You can't talk about science without talking about mental health because mental health that's is true. based on learning about science. Put it, put it on a sweatshirt, put it on our merch. <laughs> Any of the merch that we would have for the show would be like lots of words on a graphic <laughs> TV. Like, Hold on, I need, I, I need, let me get my reading glasses to check out your shirt. Um, so I guess it might be the final question of the evening. Okay. Um, or, or it depends. It went fast tonight. Like. It felt. It felt fast. I'm saying the clock's so dead right, but yeah. Um, so, friend underscore trilobot asks, <laughs> "What? Great, great, great I know these like these uh, these handles are really good. Uh, what would aliens on a planet with lo lower gravity look like? I mean, it depends on the planet. Like, gravity is only one piece of what uh, shapes natural selection. So." Um, I mean, you know, the mass of a planet is, determines its gravity, and part of that's density, right? Like uh, Jupiter and Saturn are like relatively similar volumes of planets, but Jupiter is way more massive. Saturn is about as dense as a marshmallow, which blows my mind. Uh, I've, I've heard it said that if you had a sufficiently large mug of hot cocoa, Saturn would float on the top of it. <laughs> right? So, now, those both gas giants. Those, those planets don't have a, a solid surface anywhere in them. They have a smooth transition from gas to more solid that's an aside. Um, so that low gravity, we'd have to imagine, like, is going to be paired with some things. How far it is from what type of star? Does it have an atmosphere? What's the composition of that atmosphere, which will impact the um, temperature of the planet? What's the day cycle like? If it's closer to a planet, does it have moons that slow it down to give it a slower and therefore more stable surface temperature in a day-night cycle? Uh, so it's hard to imagine exclusively uh, what low gravity would do. So let's um, let's just to do something useful. Let's imagine a smaller Earth, just in some 
some exoplanet in another solar system, there is a star very similar to our star. There's a planet very similar to our planet with a magnetosphere perfectly attuned to keeping an atmosphere like ours. Gravity affects an atmosphere too, by the way, and how much atmosphere your planet can hold. So let's just imagine there's a reasonable layer of Earth-like atmosphere that could support photosynthesis, that could support oxygen-based uh, metabolisms. In that situation, we would imagine if, you know, the gra if the gravitational pull was half or a third of the Earth, uh, Organisms could be larger, and their skeletal structures would not have to be as dense. So um, you'll notice insects, right? Insects only get so big on Earth, on land. And then they can get bigger, arthropods, not insects specifically, but things like lobster. Lobster are a lot bigger than an insect, even though they both have exoskeletons. Why? Because a lobster's weight, their mass, is supported by the water, but when they get on land, they cannot move very well. So an exoskeleton, as it scales, gets heavy and hard to move. We could imagine on a lower gravity planet, exoskeletons might be a much more viable strategy. In fact, you might be able to get dog or horse or human-sized exoskeletons, and therefore evolution may have never tried endoskeletons. Or you might imagine that on a planet like that, since most animals don't need dense, heavy bones, flight is simply a much more common or even universal adaptation. Uh, because of the way natural selection works, genes get flipped at random. And then they get tested by the process of organisms reproducing and trying to survive. Uh, and so that environments really do shape gene expression indirectly, but definitively. So I can imagine things like that, much larger bugs <laughs> and uh, lots of stuff that flies. And um, what we would find, ironically, is in these two planets, Big Earth and Little Earth, even if we had the same atmosphere, even if we had the same basic metabolic uh, functions, Earth organisms would do relatively poorly in the lower gravity planet, we'd have uh, tissue degeneration, we have a bone degeneration. And then organisms from that planet, if they came here, would probably be crushed under their own weight and unable to survive. What life does really well is adapt and find a niche to its environment. And so a factor like gravity plays a significant role in our ability to survive. This is one of the major limitations of space travel, by the way, is what do we do with humans in microgravity all the time? It's really bad for our bodies and our body's health. Wow. Uh, someone, someone in the comments said giant flying lobster aliens. <laughs> lobster aliens. That's got to be the official name of this episode. Giant flying <laughs> lobster, lobster aliens. We have a book club on our private discord. Um, so everybody joining tonight, just FYI, we're reading Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Um, we're really excited to jump into that. At our first Cozy Robot Book Club ever. It's the inaugurational book. Uh, so go to CozyRobots.com to sign up. Uh, if you sign up on any tier, it it will you will gain access to the private Discord. Any uh, any pledge, 
That's my spiel. And just 10 minutes following the close of this very episode, we'll be on that Discord having the after party like we do every week. We all get in a room on Discord together. We decide what we'd like to do for fun together. A lot of times it's playing Jackbox games, especially because some of us, Stephanie Tate, are extremely good at those games. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But it's a lot of fun. We're, we've got a regular crowd that comes every week, and it's growing all the time. We'd love to see you there. And of course, as always, I'd like you to know, that the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank, of course, the people who make the show possible, each and every Cozy Robot. Our producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, now on camera, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galucky. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Hi, Caitlin. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design by my dear friend Jesse at Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, as well as CEO of my whole life, Jenny McCarg. Thanks for joining us tonight. And on behalf of our entire team, we can't wait to talk with you again next week. Bye, friends. Bye, guys. Bye.